0: we thank you uh, for who you are. And we pause for just a moment here uh, to be silent before you and to recognize that you are infinitely above us. God, I pray that you impress that on our minds right now. I pray that you would keep us from thinking of you in small terms Like you're like us, but maybe a little bit better. That's such garbage. I pray instead that you would lift our eyes to see who you truly are, so that we would worship you and behold you, to stand in awe of all you are and all you have done for us. God, I pray that you would use your word and use our time together to shape us and to form us to be people who are worshipers of you, who glorify you, and who are in awe and wonder of your glory every day. We pray this in the name of Jesus, asking for the power of your Holy Spirit to be with us this morning. Amen. Uh, This summer I was talking to a guy who was uh, headed out to be pastor in this remote little uh, area of Alaska. So it was off-the-road system, a fly-in only kind of a place. And one of the things that we were talking about was uh, he was weighing this decision of whether he would pursue uh, a pilot's license and get a little uh, bush plane uh, to be able to help with ministry. He was kind of thinking of the pros and cons of this. And the pros are really substantial. If you're in an isolated little town like that, being able to have the mobility of a bush plane is, is massive. It means that you can go all over the place. You're not confined to your one little area. And it also opens up lots of different opportunities for ministry. You can spread uh, the, the gospel more easily to get uh, to more places. And on top of that, it gives you opportunities to serve other people. But with all of those pros is the one really big con. It can be extremely dangerous. And it seems like everyone in Alaska knows someone who has been killed in a small plane accident. While we were there this summer, a sightseeing flight near Denali crashed into the mountain, and, and all five people aboard died. It hasn't been that long since a plane out of Luddington ended up going down in Lake Michigan. I mean, these are the, the sobering realities of uh, small plane uh, life. But what's interesting is to me is that this, pilot, uh, this uh, pastor had been talking to a veteran bush pilot who'd been up there like 30 years of flying around Alaska. And he was talking about his fears with this uh, veteran pilot. And the pilot said, actually, those fears are what will save your life. See, so there's this thing that happens with uh, more experience. As, as new pilots gain more hours, they gain more confidence. And they tend to overestimate their abilities and, and underestimate the dangers. And they can make these really critical mistakes. And, and he described pilots with 300 hours of experience as being in the death zone for pilots. So you're not a brand new pilot. You've logged a lot of hours. You kind of know your plane. You know what's going on here. You've, you've had some experiences. You've been through some things. But you tend to minimize what's at stake here. And in the minute, without that constant awareness of what is at stake and what could go wrong, they have a much higher risk of making a mistake. And so there's a cluster of accidents right at that 300-hour-of-experience thing. He calls it the death zone for pilots. And as so I was thinking about that. I, you know, I, I wonder if the same thing happens in, in the Christian life. Right? We talk about these huge truths that God is the creator of everything and everyone, that he is holy, that he is perfect, that he is amazing, that he sent his son to rescue us even though we are not holy. I mean, these are life-changing realities. These are the kind of truths that, that transformed people's lives. But if you've been in church for a little while, they become really familiar. You've heard it before. So there's a cross in the front of the sanctuary. It's been there forever. And you just kind of assimilate that into your thinking. You don't really think about what it means that the son of God, who was with God from the very beginning, the one who is the agent of creation, the perfect son of God, came and suffered and died an excruciating death on a cross for us. But we just see a cross up there. Okay, there's a cross there, of course. Or you hear, well, God loves you. You think, yeah, of course God loves me. Or you see someone holding up a John 3.16 sign, and in your mind, you kind of drone through it. Okay, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. See, it becomes familiar to us. And we don't really think about it anymore. And when, when this stuff becomes routine and we lose our sense of wonder, we become in the, the death zone spiritually. We begin to presume upon God and we, we kind of coast through. We forget what is at stake and so we forget that we, our life is clinging to Christ So this fall, we're asking God to to open our eyes again to see the wonder of who he is and the wonder of what he has done for us. So we're in this series of Behold, we're lifting our eyes to see the glory of God so that we respond not with complacency and, and treating this as an ordinary thing, but that we would respond with passionate worship to this amazing, glorious God. And so today we're going to look at the wonder of God's salvation. So grab a Bible. We're going to look at Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's fine. Grab one from under the chair in front of you. Uh, This is found on page 1,750 of uh, the Bibles in the chair racks. So this is Romans 5, 1 through 11. You can grab a phone if you want and get there quickly. 1,750 of the chair Bibles. Now we've been building toward this the past several weeks. So the first week we, we looked at how creation points beyond itself to this amazing, powerful, providing, glorious creator God and how we get a sense of, of wonder. If we open our eyes to see this, we gain a sense of awe and wonder of the God who made this. And, and I don't know if you've had that experience of, of going somewhere and like maybe looking over Lake Michigan, seeing the vast expanse of it, and, and you just feel really small or maybe you go out at night and you look up at the stars and you see amazing stars all over the place, countless in number, and you think about how you are in relation to them, getting even a tiny sense of the vastness of the universe and you feel so very small. We actually see that in Psalm 8, the writer has that same experience. He says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you're mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? See, when you get a sense of, of the power and the majesty of God, by looking around at the world around it, you can feel very small, and then you realize that the God who created the universe actually notices us and cares for us. It's an overwhelming reality. And then last week, we looked at the holiness of God, which is this concept that's just too big for our minds to grasp. And we heard this messenger of God named Isaiah and, and his vision of, of the throne room of God and hearing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And this holiness, it means that God is infinitely above us. He is utterly distinct from everything else in all of creation. And he is perfect, absolutely perfect in all he is and all he does And recognizing that holiness, then we realize our own unholiness and how unworthy we are to stand before the throne. And yet we are invited in in Jesus to stand before him. So it's building on those realities and reflecting on those that we can then come to gain a sense of the awe-inspiring power and beauty and glory of the salvation that God offers us. So let's look at Romans 5 this morning. We're going to get a sense for the, the glory that is shown in our salvation. First, by looking at our starting point, who we are, and then the outcome of this salvation, what happens to us here. So let's start by looking at uh, our starting point. So Romans 5, we're actually going to start in verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So this is it right here. The reason there are crosses in churches and crosses are kind of the symbol of Christianity is because of this. Jesus died for us. And these verses are helping us understand that that's not just an ordinary, normal thing. They're showing us how amazing it is that Jesus would die for us. Look at the terms that are used to describe the people that Jesus died for. Verse 6. It is the powerless. Your translation might have the weak. In other words, it's people who could not accomplish this on their own. We could not attain to our salvation. We could not reach this ourselves. We are powerless. And it is those people, people like you and me, that Christ died for. People who are ungodly. Ungodly is the next step. It shows us that, that we are not on God's side when Jesus died for us. We are on the other side. We're doing things against the glory of God. In verse 8, it is while we were sinners that Christ died for us. So sinners, people who are actively opposing the goodness and the holiness and the perfection of God, people who are making mistakes and failing again and again and again. And then verse 10, if you skip ahead just a minute, we were God's enemies. So we weren't just neutral. We were actually working against God's goodness. That's who we were. I mean, these terms are all stacked up together to underscore the unworthiness of people like you and me to receive this salvation. We are powerless. We were ungodly. We were sinners. We were actually enemies of God. And if we look back to a few chapters before this in this book that we're looking at in Romans, we get a sense for how bad that really is and what it means for us. So the first chapter of Romans, chapter 1, verse 18, says this, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness the wrath of God for who for the godless for those who are ungodly verse 5 or chapter 5 just said that was us we were the ungodly Verse 21, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. So we know better. We can look at the creation around us and see the glory and the goodness of God. We can get a sense of his splendor through what he has said to us. But instead of that, we trade all that in for garbage, unless we think this is about other people, chapter two, verse one, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the very same thing. This isn't about those bad people out there. This is the starting point of every human. Verse five, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. And it's not that we don't deserve God's wrath, it is that we do, in fact, deserve his wrath because of our stubborn hearts, because of our sinfulness, because we are enemies of God. And then the blanket statement, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So this brings into clear focus what is at stake here and what we deserve. See, it's one thing to stand at the edge of Lake Michigan, to look at the vast expanse and to feel very small and to feel unworthy of God's love. It's one thing to look up at the stars at night and get a sense of the the immenseness of the universe and feel small and to realize that God notices you. But then to recognize that this is my starting point, powerless, ungodly, sinner, an enemy of God, that's a whole new level, that I deserve wrath. That's a startling and terrifying realization. See, the author is driving all of this to help us see and even to feel on a visceral level the position that that you and I are before God. The starting point for every one of us is not just precarious. We need a little bit of a boost of help. The starting point here is on the verge of despair. There's nothing that we can do. We deserve God's wrath. We're on the verge of death. So let me ask you this. What would you do with you? If you were in God's position, and this is true of you, well, what would you do with you, right? If you're powerless, if you're ungodly, you're a sinner, you're an enemy, you knowingly trade the glory of the immortal God for this stuff that's around you, what would you do with someone like that? When we lived in uh, the Chicago area, uh, we would occasionally go uh, downtown. And every single time we walked around downtown Chicago, we saw people on uh, the sidewalks who were begging for food uh, or money. If you've been to Chicago, you've seen the same thing. It's always happening. So what do we do? Well, we we tell ourselves a story about them so that we'll feel okay about not giving them money. Well, they must have made some bad choices in their life. Well, they're probably just going to go and spend it on alcohol and get drunk. We tell ourselves these stories. We do it in an instant, and we avoid eye contact, and we just kind of keep walking on. So we get this category in our minds of what the deserving poor are, and we just assume that this person who's begging for money is not one of those people, and so I don't have an obligation to give to them. Now of course we don't know if uh, the story that we make up for that person is true, but let's just imagine for a minute that you knew for certain that the worst story about this particular person who's asking for money is true. Let's say you know that this person who's asking you for money yesterday took the money that they had been given, and they went to the store, and they bought enough vodka to get drunk out of their mind, and then they went and found a random stranger and beat them to the point that they had to go to the hospital. Now, if you knew that was true about this person who's asking you for money, are you going to pull out your wallet and give them a 20? Of course not, right? That would be a reckless thing to do. But if we're taking seriously what Romans is saying about God's salvation here, It's like God picked the person with the worst story and the worst track record and the longest rap sheet, the least deserving person, and chose to rescue them. Right? This is what it's saying. When we were powerless, Christ died for us. When we were ungodly, he died for us. When we were sinners, he died for us. When we were God's enemies, he reconciled us to the Father. See, all this is serving to intensify the amazing wonder of God's salvation. And what it means is that the glory doesn't go to you. And the glory doesn't go to me. If this is true, what is being said here, then of course all of the glory goes to this amazing God who has chosen to take incredibly undeserving people and make them his own sons and daughters and to rescue them and to make them new. this This is the glory of God's salvation. As we look at our starting point, the starting point of all of humanity, we start to get a sense of wonder and awe of what this God has done for us in sending Jesus to save us. And then we get a further sense of that glory when we see the outcome of this salvation. We see what happens as a result of Jesus dying for us and bringing us to the Father. Let's look back at verse 1 of Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So this is what the death of Jesus actually accomplishes in us. So we saw that Jesus died for those who are unworthy and now we see what happens to those unworthy people. It takes people who would stand before the throne of God and be declared guilty, condemned, deserving his wrath. And it justifies us. The death of Jesus removes our guilt from us and makes us righteous before a holy God. And that means that now we're able to stand in the presence of this perfectly holy God with peace. We have peace Toward Him, We talked about the, the wonder of this with Isaiah last week, how he stood before the holy God. And he said, I am ruined, that there is nothing I can do. It just shines like a spotlight on every imperfection in his soul. And he realizes that there is nothing he can do to stand before this holy God. And yet this is what happens because Jesus took unworthy people and he died for us. Now we are justified. We are declared righteous before the holy God so that we can actually have peace with him we can stand in his presence we are reconciled to him and can actually have a relationship with him all of this because jesus has given us access to the father he has brought us to him so that rather than standing in god's wrath now we are standing in god's grace and as a parenthetical note here in romans 5 that's true even if you're suffering today even if there are things going on that you are not happy about in your life that you're struggling with you know that God is for you and you know that God loves you because his spirit confirms that message in our hearts. And he confirms it by showing us the truth of what Jesus did for us. And if this is what happened when we were least deserving, we were unworthy, sinners, powerless, enemies of God, well, then we can be absolutely sure that our future is secure in him. And that's where he goes next. Look at the last couple verses here, starting verse nine. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So the gospel shows us why we can be confident of our future. It has changed our story. We are now transformed. Jesus came for us when we were least deserving, and his salvation changes our status. It affects this fundamental transformation. It moves all the categories around. So think about the labels that we already saw in Romans 5. Verse 6, we were ungodly, but now, verse 9, we have been justified We were, verse 10, God's enemies, but now, the second half of verse 10, we are reconciled to have a relationship with him. We were, verse 8, sinners, but now we are saints. We are God's holy people, Romans 1-7. It means that there's this fundamental shift in who we are. The story has changed for us, and that means now that we have peace with God, and we have assurance that we have a home with him for eternity, never to face God's wrath, but instead to enjoy his presence and his love forever. Because if God showed us his love so powerfully by sending Jesus to die for us when we were at our very worst, then of course, now that he has made us new, that we will be reconciled and have this future home with him. See, this is what the, the gospel accomplishes. This is what Jesus does for us. It's a radical transformation. So he doesn't just throw a 20 at the guy who's begging on the street. He picks him up, he brings him home, and he makes him a child of God, totally transforming his life. I mean, this is the power of the gospel. These are these amazing truths that we get to live in and that we get to proclaim week after week. So here's what happens. These truths become ordinary, right? If you're a follower of Jesus, it means that at some point you heard this story of God's salvation and it blew you away. You knew that this is what you needed, but over time, that excitement tends to kind of wane. So yeah, you're still happy to hear that God loves you, but, but it doesn't stop you in your tracks anymore. It doesn't consume your thoughts every day. You get used to seeing a cross, and it seems like a given. Right? We've, we've entered that death zone spiritually. Or maybe you're not yet a follower of Jesus, and it's probably because this just doesn't strike you as, as true, as real. It doesn't strike you as as reality, and maybe it seems like a nice myth, or maybe you feel like you don't need it, maybe you feel like it doesn't apply to you, or whatever. So how does this come alive for us in a way that we can live day in and day out, beholding the wonder and the glory of God's salvation? Throughout this whole series, I've been struggling with this, thinking, well, I can't just manufacture this. I can't make anyone behold the glory of God. I can't give anyone this amazing experience of, of God's glory. But in coming to think of this more and more, I, I think that's not always what we need. I think we really want the mountaintop experiences. We want the magnificent, the spectacular. We want God to, to hit us with a lightning bolt and, and to blow us away in a way that we'll never forget. And those are great gifts. Those moments when, when God blesses us with that, those are things that, we, that leave an indelible mark on us and who we are. But it's actually what happens in the ordinary, everyday course of life that matters. I mean, I hate to break it to you, but... Most of the Christian life is ordinary stuff, and it's what happens in the course of the very common that can have a real long-term impact on what our lives actually look like day in and day out. And that might sound like a downer on some level, but I think it's actually really powerful. I think the ordinary can have a real impact. My kids have been a great reminder of this for me. Uh, this summer, I remember one, one day I asked uh, our kids what was their favorite thing that we had done so far in the summer. And we lined up some really cool things over the summer. They got to see Denali, the highest peak in, in North America. They got to climb mountains. They got to uh, hike. They got to see moose. All these are really fun things. So I'm expecting some big answer of this was the best thing. And one of them said, it well, was the day that we got to go play in a mud puddle with our cousins? I'm thinking, what are you talking about? Like, do you remember what we just did? Like, why did we have all these amazing mountaintop experiences if you're going to talk about playing in a mud puddle together? See, what had happened is uh, we were driving with with my uh, brother and sister-in-law's family and and he was towing a trailer and and a tire blew on the trailer. So we're middle of nowhere and he pulled over to the side and and so we allow the kids this diversion of playing in these mud puddles they found, uh, the muddy mud holes they call them. Uh, So they're playing in the mud while we're trying to sit there for hours waiting for help to come, waiting for a new tire to come and all that kind of thing. So to us... That was nothing, that that was a detour, it was something that was frankly annoying that we had to just kind of wait and slog through, but to the kids, this was something that was really fun, they got to ruin their clothes and get really muddy and and just have a lot of fun with their cousins. So it was was something that was so ordinary, so, so normal, so really a diversion, a detour from what we wanted to do, and yet it had this really lasting impact, one of their favorite days from all summer. And it made me realize, you know, I think the, the awe and the wonder of beholding the glory of God's salvation, it doesn't just happen on the mountaintop experiences. It happens in the ordinary course of everyday life. So, so we can do things. We can live in such a way that it, it turns even the ordinary stuff that we deal with day in and day out into opportunities to behold the glory of God. Let me give you one practice. Has anyone here sinned? No one's raising their hands. Come on, half of you are lying. Okay, let's, okay, have you sinned this week? So let's let's just be clear on what we mean by sin here. So have you done something or said something that goes against the perfection of a holy God? Have you thought things that go against the perfection of a holy God? Or have you failed to fully live up to what it means to live as a follower of Jesus and to go and to lay your life down, to serve other people sacrificially day in and day out? Okay, have you failed to do that at all? This past week. Okay, so so here's the thing. What do we actually do when that happens? I think there are several very common responses. I think probably the most common response is to just ignore those things. We're we're not going to let that get on our conscience. We're not going to think about it, just kind of sweep it under the rug and, and move on with our day. Most of us live, I think, most of our lives not conscious of the perfect holiness of God and therefore not conscious of the ways that we are failing to live up to that holiness. So one, we just ignore it. Or two, maybe we feel really guilty. And because we feel really guilty, we feel unworthy of even approaching the holy God, and so we run and we hide. We are filled with shame. Or, some of us, we decide that we're going to do some kind of penance. We are going to show God that we are really, really sorry. We're going to give pain or punish ourselves to show God, God, I will do better next time. I'm going to try harder. I promise. Now, none of those responses, which I think are very common, none of those responses deal with the gospel, right? None of those actually remind us of what Jesus has done for us. Remember, when did Jesus die for us? Powerless, ungodly, sinners, enemies of God, deserving his wrath. That's when Jesus died for us. So when we sin we can respond in a way that that doesn't remind us of the gospel and just makes us feel bad about ourselves and doesn't bring glory to God. It just kind of makes us try to try harder, but that's not a gospel response to sin. There's actually a way to respond to sin that helps us to behold the glory of God's salvation. So instead of running away in shame or, or hiding from God and eventually slinking back to him when we feel like we've sufficiently shown that we're sorry, we'll never do it again, instead of that, We remember the gospel. When Jesus died for me, when I was at my very worst, and he has now justified me so I can stand before the throne of grace, forgiven, and have a relationship. I'm reconciled to the Father now. So that means then, in that moment, I run to him. I confess my sin. I glory in the gospel, and it's a new chance to celebrate him and to worship him for what he's done for us. It's an actual gospel response to an everyday part of your life. Every single time we fail to live up to the perfection of a holy God, we have an opportunity to come before his throne of grace, to remember the beauty and the glory of the gospel, to receive his forgiveness, and then as a result, to praise him and to worship him. Because it's not about us and our performance. It never has been and it never will be. This is about the glory of God. He is so good to us. And it's not because you tried really hard. And it's not because you had such potential. It's not because you could see your future and you're gonna do so amazing things. It's because of his great love for us that is demonstrated so powerfully in the cross. That's what this is about, right? So don't run away from Jesus. Don't do the whole penance and shame and hiding and ignoring sin. Deal with it in a real way that brings you back to the glory of the gospel. When you sin, run to God, confess your sin to him and have an opportunity to worship him for how good he is and how glorious his salvation is. And this is true whether that's the really big sins that you've committed. Look at some of the stories in the Bible. There's this King David, this great king in the Old Testament, yet he does these terrible things. He sleeps with another man's wife and then makes sure the guy gets killed. So adultery and murder. You probably haven't done that this week, I hope. But, but even big sins like that, he brings that to God after God sends a prophet to say, no, this is what you did. He realizes his sin And he falls down on his face and worships God. And God forgives him. So whether it's really big things that you've done or just the ordinary mundane things, like, God, once again, I lost it with my kids and I blew up with them and I yelled them and I cut them down. God, forgive me. Whether it's the really big things or the really everyday mundane things, we have an opportunity every single day to come back to the salvation that God has given us. And that's how we marvel at Jesus in our everyday lives. It's the ordinary course of coming back to Jesus day after day after day, acknowledging our need for Him, confessing our failures, receiving His forgiveness, and then rejoicing in His salvation. It doesn't have to be a big mountaintop experience. It's the day-to-day recognition that that brings us back to the glory and the beauty of the gospel, the salvation that God has given us. Well, today we have another opportunity to remember this. We have the Lord's Supper here before us. And and this is a meal that Jesus gave us to remember his death on our behalf. So we'll take a little bread, a little piece of cracker. And that cracker symbolizes the the body of Jesus that was broken for us, that, that brings us our salvation. As we take that, we remember that we need him. We need to cling to him, to be united to him, to have life. And then we'll take a little cup And that cup symbolizes the blood of Jesus that was shed for us and for the forgiveness of our sins. What brings us this this, uh, justification being made right before a holy God. And we take that and we remember that we belong to him and that we have our life in him. So we're gonna take the opportunity to, to use this as a moment to stop and to be quiet before God, to confess our failures before him, and to receive his forgiveness, to remember the gospel, and then to glory and worship him for what he has done. So we're going to have some moments of reflection here. I'm going to ask the, um, the servers to come forward now. And I'll give you a few instructions for how we're going to do this. Uh, but first, let's, let's pray together. God, I, we're so thankful for this meal that Jesus has given us. I thank you for this simple Act that can powerfully bring the gospel to bear on our lives. And I pray that that would happen. I pray that these elements will provide more than physical nourishment. I, I pray that they would, you would grant us the peace and the unity and the spiritual nourishment that the bread symbolizes. And I pray that the cup would speak again of the blood Christ shed for the forgiveness of sin. We ask that you would cleanse us and consecrate us again as we partake of this meal together. We eagerly await the day we'll eat it with you in the kingdom of heaven.